Well, good morning. It's great to be with you today. My name is Peter. I uh, am the pastor of youth and discipleship, so I work a lot with our youth, um, our middle schoolers, our high schoolers, as well with our adults in our uh, women's ministries, men's ministries, and our small groups. Um, if you're new here, there's a brochure in the, the back that we would love to you get connected uh, to the ministries that we have going on for adult discipleship. Um, our text today is uh, a text that touches an interesting thing that's going on uh, in the public sphere more and more lately. It's the idea of the public apology. Um, so as technology has become more and more available with social media and with the smartphone, um, more and more information goes out about people's lives. Hence, the need for leaders and people in the public sphere to apologize for everything that's coming out of their heart as they're in the public eye. Now, with public apologies, it's a lot of times forced upon people in the public sphere that uh, the public will not follow them, not listen to them unless they initiate some sort of an apology for their actions. Now, because of that, what's becoming more and more common is the idea of the non-apology apology, the I'm sorry, but not sorry. Um, and this comes on with, um, you know, different different times in where people are want to apologize to look good, but don't really mean it. Um, so what, one of the tactics in that is to put it on you and say, I'm sorry you felt that way. Or if I offended anyone, I apologize. Um, or um, if, if, if that's the way you feel about it, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the other tactic in this is to um, try to distance yourself away from the situation, even though a lot of times people in these situations are the main active person in it. They try to separate it away saying, I'm, you know, mistakes were made. I'm sorry that happened to you. Um, and the idea is that you get some, some distance in, from that situation. You don't really own up to it. So it's amazing to see in our culture what will people do with a bad situation uh, that they're involved in. In our series in the life of David, how, does, how is this going to play out in David's life? We've learned about David as a public figure from his rise as a, a little shepherd boy being uh, anointed by Samuel to be the next king. Um, as he rises, as he works through having a relationship with the former king who um, isn't for him, um, and as he uh, goes into his um, kingdom, how is it going to play out this idea of all leaders fail, every person um, has stuff that comes out of them that's wrong, how, how is David going to deal with this? So that kind of brings us to our verse today, it's in 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 12, and then we'll be also in Psalm 51 today. Um, I'll start by uh, reading 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 5. In the spring of the year, when the time, uh, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, and David remained in, at Jerusalem. So 
a lot of times in an opening of a movie or uh, a play, they'll have some sort of soundtrack. And one of the famous ones is the Star Wars movies. You have the back, uh, the black backdrop with the stars, and then you have the, kind of the gold text that comes up, and then it goes, I mean, I'm going to try to hum it. Yeah, you don't want to hear any more of that. Um, so it goes up, and it kind of gets you going with this, this idea that, oh, we're going to be on this kind of adventure. We're going to kind of engage in this thing that's kind of exciting. Well, the, the text today has, has more of a Jaws soundtrack theme than that kind of the beginning. It's, you know, as... Uh, when the kings were supposed to go out to battle, and you hear, Dun-na. you know, David sent Joab, Dun-na. and his servants, Dun-na, Dun-na, Dun-na. so it kind of sets you up of what's going to happen, what kind of tragedy is going to happen, because David wasn't doing what was expected of him. David wasn't being the leader that people needed him to be. So we're going to dive into what happened. It happened Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, this, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, David's palace was on the top of the city of David in Jerusalem. He could see everything that was going on from his vantage point. And rather than seeing this and kind of closing his eyes and moving on and fighting lust that was arising in his heart, he gives himself over to it. Um, He decides that even though he is the king, he has sons and daughters, he has anything that anyone could ask for at that time, he says, I must have her. I must take this woman. Um, so he gives in to his lust. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David's got a big problem. He has just impregnated one of his top warriors uh, wives. Uh, Uriah is named in later in the book of Samuel uh, as one of the 30. So this guy is a warrior machine. Uh, the Hittites are people who come from Turkey and were sent out and they would be paid as um, mercenaries for other kings. So this guy's whole background is being a soldier. And so David was very aware of this man and what this mistake might threaten to him, um, threaten his power and his life. Uh, But what David doesn't see is this bigger problem. The bigger problem is that he broke the seventh commandment. Um, He committed adultery. Um, He's not in line with God's heart. Now, God gives commands out of his heart and his character. They're not um, arbitrary commands, but he, he says um, 
things that work well because that's the way God has established the universe. And God is faithful to one bride, his church. Um, God doesn't leave us or forsake us um, and goes, tries to find another people, but he's committed to his people, the church. Um, and Ephesians 5, verses 31 through 32, explains this. Um, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his mother, or his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So the mystery of marriage, the faithfulness that needs to be in marriage, comes from the Christ and his faithfulness to the church throughout all generations. And God doesn't leave his people. God doesn't forsake his people. Um, but David is blind to that right now. He's blind to re the realities of God. He only has his eyes on the circumstances. So David then calls up Uriah home from the battlefield. And he says, you know, in his head, he's like, I got to get this guy to be at home with his wife because, you know, Uriah can do math and he's going to figure it out and he's going to kill me if I don't, if I don't deal with this situation. Now, Uriah is a focused soldier and he um, has the mindset, if the guys on the battlefield uh, can't be home with their wives, so I'm not going to be either. So he stays at the king's gate. He doesn't go home, and he stays in that type of war mentality. And what's kind of ironic is if David had that mentality, if he had that solidarity with his guys on the battlefield, he would never be in this situation. Um, but he let his guard down. He got off track of what he was supposed to be doing at that time. Uh, so after several tries, David can't get Uriah to go home. So then David makes a more devious plan in his mind. He decides he's going to secretly kill him. And he makes Uriah carry this letter that has um, Uriah's death instructions on it. And he makes him carry the letter to the commander. And the plan is we're going to put Uriah right up front, right up against the wall. And then when Every, when he's there and he's in the middle of the battle, they're going to pull back and Uriah will die. And that's exactly what happens. And not only does Uriah die, but some other key warriors also die. So David gets this report. It's told to Bathsheba, and she mourns for her husband. And David kind of slinks his way um, back into Bathsheba's life after uh, his plan works. Uh, verse 27 says, And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So the Hebrew in this passage is, um, he did, displeased the Lord means, uh, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And that's very, very important for us to see is it's God's perspective, God's vision, God's um, view of things that sets right and wrong. Um, it is not the circumstances or what people feel about different things that makes things right and wrong. It is God's perspective. And David needs to get this perspective. And God graciously um, gives him um, a prophet to order to change his perspective. 
Um, so he sends the prophet Nathan to him. And Nathan, in the past, was pr- on pretty good terms with David, was very supportive of him as a king. But now it was time to confront him. So David te- uh, Nathan tells David this story about uh, a rich man with so many flocks of sheep and a poor man who just had one, one sheep. That's all he had. Um, and it was so... Uh, important to him that uh, he the sheep was with him all throughout his day. Now, the rich man had a traveler come into town, and many of you, when you have guests come in town, it's Thanksgiving or, or Christmas coming up, you make a big, nice meal. And that's the idea here, is that they would prepare a very nice meal for this traveler. But the the rich man was just selfish. He didn't want to sacrifice any of his own flock. So he stole from this poor man and prepared it for uh, his friend. And David is the king, and he's supposed to get justice and order right in his kingdom. And he thinks this is a real, real deal. So he um, is all angry. He's all upset. And he says that that man deserves to die. So he is infuriated. And Nathan points his fury at the right direction. Nathan says, uh, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? So David finally gets God's perspective. He feels what God feels. He sees what he did wrong. And he sees how this coveting led him him to um, adultery and then to murder. So what is David going to do? How is he going to respond? Um, This series that we're in is called A Man After God's Own Heart. And will David remain being a man after God's own heart in this situation? Will his heart align with God's? And and by God's grace, his heart uh, does align. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, this phrase is really, really short, but um, it points to his broken heart, what he actually thought about the situation. And uh, Psalm 51 tells us, Davis wrote out a song to be sung in front of everyone. A giant, I mean, it was a very public apology that would be part of their devotions and part of their singing of the Lord. And so we're going to dive into Psalm 51 to hear what, what David's, what was going on with his heart when he said, I have sinned against the Lord. Um, so the first thing David does is gets his heart right by not focusing on people, but gets his heart um, right in the sight of God. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And today, that's exactly what we need to do as Christ followers. Um, the world has no, no grounds, no basis for what they think right and wrong is. A lot of times the world will try to deny right and wrong 
and th say that just bad circumstances or people's upbringing or bad education or bad government will produce a bad situation where sin will come out. And that's just not true. That's not um, what sin is. Sin is before the Lord mostly. And we need um, to have that mindset as Christians uh, to change from what do we just think about this to what does God think about this. Now, in verse 3, he moves on to describe his sin. And he says, um, he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He doesn't um, put it beyond him to make mistakes. He knows that his sin is just right there. And that's true of all of us, that oh, so many different times during the day, we just have wrong moments. You want to, you respond badly. You feel impatient. Um, and your sin is just right there before you. Uh, and then he also acknowledges where he comes from. He says, uh, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Now, uh, David acknowledges that he is a son of Adam, that he is descended from Eve. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they rebelled against God. And that type of rebellion is the natural bent of people, that if nothing goes unchanged, their, their hearts want to rebel against God, just like Adam and Eve did. Um, and sometimes that rebellion comes out very subtly. Sometimes it's very extreme. But the natural bent of the human heart is to rebel against God. Um, so is there any real hope for us as human beings? Is there hope for David in this terrible situation um, where he's broken several commandments? And um, is, there, is there a way where he can be delivered out of it? Um, and the, the passage answers, yes, absolutely yes. Uh, verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So um, what does this mean, a, a broken spirit, a broken heart? So the word broken there is if you, the, the idea of a pot. And when a pot is just smashed, it's just in pieces. And that's the type of idea that um, David wants us to get, that his heart was just smashing the pieces. And the word contrite here in other parts of the Bible means like crushed. So if you have like a heart that's just crushed on the floor and then you have it kind of ground up against um, the floor where you have dust. And that's the idea of it's just crushed. And that's where David's heart um, was at. And the beauty is, is God responds to that. God is a good parent. He's like a good mom, a good dad, who when they see that their child is truly um, sorry over their sin, they, they, they change direction and go a different way and have a different approach when that sorrow is there. Now, this type of sorrow and brokenness is really what kept me from coming to Christ uh, when I, uh, before, before I started walking with him. I had this thought that I wasn't really that bad. Uh, I, I could do some good things to make up for what I did wrong, right? Um, and I was afraid. I was afraid if I was honest, if I was afraid that if I showed people my sin, if I showed them my heart, my addictions, things that I was stuck in, 
then I was going to be punished. That it was, it was going to be worse than living in it. And, um, and that is not the truth. The truth is that if you have a humble heart before God, he is the one that is crushed for your sin. It is Jesus that takes on the punishment. Uh, Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed. Now that same word as smitten in our, our psalm for today, for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. So we can see in this passage in Isaiah that if we come to the Lord with a broken heart, he's the one who heals us. He puts us back together. And David has the same, same hope in his psalm. He is confident in the Lord that the Lord will heal him. The Lord will clean him. Um, he says in verse 8, let, uh, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So the, the goal of confessing your sin and being broken over your sin is not just to be continually beating yourself up and that's your thoughts throughout the day. No, no. The goal is joy and gladness and repentance so that God, you know that as you lay this before the Lord, he brings you together and you continue throughout your day with joy and gladness. So um, there's, there's a wonderful pastor named uh, Robert Murray Machane. He was a Scottish pastor and uh, he, he had this great saying, for every, every time you look at yourself, take, take 10 looks at the cross. Um, and um, you, you, can, um, you can get bogged down so much by letting, letting the narrative of your life um, saying, I'm, I'm dirty, I can't be clean, I'm dirty. Um, but if you have, we need to have this hope that David has where he says um, in verse 7, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And that trust that um, if he washes us, it says, I will be clean. Um, we will be whiter than snow. And that idea of living with a clean heart before God, uh, I just, uh, one thing that just, I can compare it to is just coming out of the shower after a long, hard day's work, whether you're working on a farm or you've done some landscaping and you just, you get out of the shower and you know, one, that you don't have to work for the rest of the day, that the work is finished, and two, you just feel like clean and restored and, and ready just to be at peace. And that's the same way it feels to have a clean heart before God. You, you just feel peace and refreshment um, so that you can, you can move uh, forward. Um, and the beauty of all this is, is God doesn't just, clean, he does clean us for ourselves, but he also cleans us for his glory. That he, d he takes us who are broken vessels, broken pots, and puts us back together and then displays us off to people and shows how much power he has that he can change someone, how much power he has that um, he can make someone who is so beset with sin to be perfect and holy. Now, that doesn't happen uh, in this lifetime, but slowly and surely, the more we trust God, the more we're conformed uh, to his image. And 
Um, Psalm uh, 79, 9 says, says this about how forgiving sins shows God's glory. Uh, the psalmist says, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. So when God atones for his people's sins, it shows out his glory, that he's powerful enough to save. Uh, so as, as next time that someone confronts you in your sin, um, don't rationalize. Don't downplay it. Um, I want us to take the mentality of David that we, we see that our sin is always before us and we, we come from a background where we have sinful hearts. Um, and so if there's just a shred of truth, if someone confronts you on something, acknowledge it, repent, say you're sorry to that person and know that your identity isn't your sin. Who you are in Christ is a washed, redeemed person. Um, and... And that's what uh, David did as he, um, as he was uh, washed clean. Um, sorry, hang on one second here. Uh, the prophet named uh, Nathan came to him and said, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, by this deed... Uh, you have utterly scorned the Lord, and the child who is born to you shall die. So Nathan says, God has taken away your sin. It's completely put away. Now, there is going to be a consequence for David. There is going to be an earthly uh, thing that he has to deal with, uh, his child's dying. Um, and this can happen in our lives, that sometimes when we sin, there's a uh, we might lose a job. We might lose a friend. There might be something earthly that happens um, because of a consequence of our sin. But it's better to have a clean heart before God um, than to live with earth and live with earthly consequences rather than have a proud heart before God and deal with eternal consequences for our sins. Um, this, this story with David just reminds me of um, a, a a great man that's out there today who's teaching and speaking. His name is um, Dr. Christopher Young, and he's a Moody Bible professor. And he's got a little different story than your typical Bible professor. Um, he was going to dentist school and was very much getting to the end of his program. Now, while, in, while he was in dentist school, he started a homosexual lifestyle and uh, got very involved in the party scene and was completely swamped with the sin of that. And with that, he started providing drugs to his friends for that scene and became this, um, this terrible distributor of drugs to um, people from all over the place. Now, he was one semester away from getting done with his dentist school, and the cops barge down his apartment and break in, they take his drugs, they haul him off to prison, and everyone who was supposed to be his friend, everyone who was supposed to be committed to him, departed from him. He had no one to talk to. And then when he was in prison, he realizes he has the consequences of his actions, that he has, H he tests as HIV positive, and he finally just throws himself before the Lord, comes before Jesus and admits his sin, 
begs for mercy. And Christ forgave him and gave him a new heart and started growing him and changing him. And he still has to live with the consequences of his actions, just like David did. But um, God is able to use his life and use his testimony to shine such a light uh, in this dark, dark generation. So as we move to communion, um, during your time of reflection, I just want you to confess your sins to God. Think of something that where you've fallen short of where God would have you be. Uh, and have a broken heart before him. And then for every moment that you take and look at yourself, um, take 10 moments to look at Christ. Um, he was the one who was crushed for you. He was the one that was broken he, so that you can be healed. Um, he takes your broken heart and binds it together um, to give you a new, clean heart.